Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with David Hunt, Australian history buff and author of the best-selling and entertaining um, GERT series. Hi, David. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Stefania. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So this is the third book in the series of GERT books. You started with GERT. Then you followed up with True Gert, and now we have Gert Nation. <laughs> so for those that aren't familiar with this series, can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the idea of writing these books? Sure. Um, the Gert series are, are a narrative history of Australia. Uh, the first one started, I suppose, looking at Australian history at about 65,000 BC. And by the end of the third one, I've worked my way up to 1903. What, what is different about them is that they attempt to use humour and, and satire um, to communicate Australian history to an audience who may not normally pick up an Australian history book. Um, so while the history in them is, is accurate and thoroughly researched, um, I try and communicate it in a, in a fresh way um, that will be appealing to all of those people who, ha who hated Australian history at school, <laughs> yeah. uh, where it was just sheep, uh, explorers leaving little dotted lines on maps, uh, run convicts, you know, sheep and sheep. <laughs> yeah. So the word gert, mm. like, what does that mean and what does it mean to you? Oh, well, come on, it's in, it's in our national yeah. anthem. It's in our national anthem, that's right. And most people have no idea what it means. <laughs> uh, it, it means uh, surrounded by, encircled by, uh, you know, it's got the same root as the word girdle. Um, so it's, a, it's originally an old Germanic word from the sort of uh, 9th century. Uh, it, it crept into English. And when our national anthem, uh, Advanced Australia Fair, was written in 1978, it was a word that was not uncommonly used okay. and and I chose it as the the title for my books partly because the fact that Australia was surrounded by sea was perhaps the most influential factor in how Australian history evolved from the coming of the first Australians over 65,000 years ago, uh, the convicts, um, uh, the development of the white Australia policy, all of these things were profoundly influenced by Australia being an island nation. Yeah. And that's the historical reason why I've chosen the, 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 the word Gert. Uh, the real reason is that it's, it, it, it's an anachronism that jars on the modern ear and Australian school kids hate it. Uh, <laughs> and it sums up uh, some of the absurdity, I think, yeah. of much of Australian history. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, what does this book in the series yeah. Touch on. What do you focus on in this one? Yeah, so Gert Nation is the, about the bit of Australian history that people's eyes really glazed over at school, mm. um, which which is a shame because it's 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 Sorry, fascinating and, and it, it defines who we are as a people today. It's about the coming together of the Australian colonies into the Australian nation, the birth of the Australian nation. But perhaps more importantly, the development of a, a common sense of Australian identity. So I look at the influence of the the Bush poets. Um, uh, Banjo Patterson is one of the two main characters of, of who the 
historical narrative hangs. Uh, I look at the rise of the uh, labour movement and notions of workers and capital, which, which came fairly late to Australia. Uh, and I also look um, really closely in this book at, at what it was like in the 19th century to be an Australian woman and the rise of the suffragist movement in Australia and why Australia was actually, you know, basically led the world uh, in, in a whole lot of uh, women's rights. Um, and so it's, it's, I suppose it's about who is an Australian? Um, is a woman Australian? Is a worker Australian? Is a Chinese person an Australian? So it's trying to, trying to work out how the Australian identity coalesced and the factors that it coalesced around. But when I was reading it, it actually struck me how similar things still are today yeah. to that yeah. time, right? In particular, um, all the squabbling between the state premiers and the borders—it's yeah. almost like we're not a, a, a nation anymore. We're still we're, we're back to pre-federation, um, right? We're, we're separate uh, states. Uh, absolutely, and, and this was one of the things that, as I was writing it during the, the coronavirus pandemic, and that's one of the things that I really noticed were the parallels between. The, this this part of the past and our present. So one of the themes that does emerge is the level of distrust between the Australian colonies, now the Australian states. Henry Parks, the Premier of New South Wales, uh, to rub Victoria's nose in it, actually attempted by, to introduce legislation to rename New South Wales Australia, <laughs> basically to say, look, we're the only important people here. We're just going to call ourselves Australia. And, and the Victorians sort of responded, well, maybe you should call New South Wales Convictoria. <laughs> uh, so there, there is incredible tension between New South Wales and Victoria throughout this book, but also the distrust of the smaller colonies, of the larger colonies, and the fear that they were going to get ripped off in the new world, new Australian order that was, was being created. Um, so you've got Western Australia permanently distrusting uh, the, the East and, and what Federation has to offer. You've got the Tasmanians just feeling that they'll lose out on, on, on everything because they're so small. Uh, so you've got those parallels. You've also got parallels. Um, one of the stories I tell towards the back end of the book is about the 1900 bubonic plague mm. outbreak in Sydney, which was actually the first time an Australian government developed a public health response to a disease. Uh, which involved uh, quarantine, uh, paying people for their wages whilst they were in quarantine, social distancing, uh, a range of things that we're familiar with today, but back then were novel mm. in Australia. Um, and I found those parallels interesting as well, um, as well as another major focus of the book is the rising tensions between the Australian colonies and China, yeah. um, uh, which also echoes today, and indeed their distrust of the French and the fractious relations yeah. that the Australian colonies had with France. So um, it really is a, a book for modern times. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading about the, the whole Chinese, anti, the anti-Chinese mm. sentiment, right, and how they 
they thought they were going to be invaded, how they yep. didn't trust the Chinese, how they wanted to keep them out of their borders, how mm -hmm. they were responsible for disease. And yep. I just went, oh my God, this could just be any news story of the past 18 months. Exactly. I mean, the idea that the Chinese were responsible for introducing diseases into Australia is very Kung flu China virus. Um, there was actually a Royal Commission in the, the 1880s that seriously looked at whether the Chinese were deliberately spreading leprosy uh, by selling vegetables to white women uh, that were infected with leprosy. Um, if there was a disease going around, people blamed the Chinese. They blamed the Chinese for importing opium into uh, Australia, even though it was Britain that introduced opium into China. Um, so the level of anti-Chinese sentiment was was rabid. Uh, there was rabid xenophobia. There was an incredible fear of Chinese invasion and indeed invasion by um, Asian powers generally. Um, so those echoes do resonate strongly today. But some of the history that I cover also explains why China has such a chip on its shoulder about the West, the century of humiliation uh, dating from the the, uh, the first opium war in, uh, in the late 1830s. Um, I show how Western powers stripped China of territory of sovereign rights. Uh, in 1900, New South Wales and uh, Victorian and South Australian troops were involved in the occupation of Peking as uh, Beijing was, was then known. Uh, as part of the putting down the Boxer Uprising, the Boxer Rebellion. Um, uh, so China had a lot of very legitimate concerns about the way it was perceived by Australians in the West and, and what was done to it by Western powers. And I think uh, we're still struggling with the legacies of, of that today. Mm. I remember studying it at school, but not actually comprehending the impacts on mm. Australian culture of that that time yeah um, yeah because as you as you say the things that you study at school aren't necessarily um, taught in a way that gets us to understand what the impacts are because one of the things one of the things I try and do in all of my uh, good books is to actually place Australian history mm. in the context of what's going on in the in the world around it so uh, Gert uh, was partly set around the backdrop of the American Revolution, French exploration of the Pacific, uh, uh, the spread of mercantilism with the, with the Dutch East Indies Company. Um, and and this, this book is, I suppose, the most internationalist of all of them, in that I am looking at what was happening with women's rights in America and the UK, uh, the labour movement overseas, um, what was going on in China, what was going on with British imperialism in South Africa. Uh, I cover the Boer War, um, the Sudan campaign. Um, so, you know, bits of this book are, are actually set overseas, but they all have, uh, all of those bits were shaped by and profoundly shaped Australia. Mm. Now, um, something that I found interesting as well was um, mm. The, the attitudes to teenagers hasn't really changed much, has it? <laughs> oh, no, I well, mean, that's, that's another, you know, substitute <laughs> African street gangs with larrikins. And, um, yeah. and there you have it. Um, 
So old people such as myself have been grumbling about the, the youth of today uh, for, for, you know, probably since man picked up a couple of bits of wood and started rubbing them together. Um, certainly one of the, there are really three set central stories that continue throughout the book. One is the story of Alfred Deacon, uh, our second prime minister who, who appears throughout the book. The other is Banjo Patterson and the third is, 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 if you like, a potted history of, of the larrikin, the Australian larrikin, which is a very different beast to the sort of lovable, anti-authoritarian uh, rogue that we see as larrikins today. Larrikins, when they first appeared uh, in, the 18, in, in 1870, the term was first appeared in print, were um, juvenile street gang members. Um, responsible for assaults, um, you know, uh, theft um, and public disorder offences. Um, and they were in no way popular or admired. Um, and they really sort of came together through a love of um, a musical theatre, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is what I find amazing. These, were, these are street gangs that, that actually coalesced around singing sort of Cockney costamonger songs, <laughs> dancing, uh, and we, you know when you were being mugged by a, a larrikin street gang uh, or a push, as they were known, you really felt like you were being mugged by the cast of West Side Story. I mean, it's um, it, it's 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 a ripping yarn of disaffected street youth, and um, uh, and you still see manifestations of of, of that today. I think I think it's really interesting that. Like, you know, a hated figure, a despised figure. Larrikins hated each other more than anyone else. They fought each other. Uh, and now that word with very negative connotations has become sort of a source of, you know, blokey Aussie pride. Yeah, um, right. And I find that a fascinating transformation. Yeah, Bob Hawke, right? Mm. A typical larrikin. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but in those days... <laughs> Yeah. That's right. But you ought to want to be a larrikin back then, right? Um, so speaking of Australian Prime Ministers, mm. and you've touched on, um, on Alfred Deakin. Mm. So I recently did a podcast with Gary, Gary Linnell. Yeah. Um, and he, I'm sure you know, know him. He did a, he, he's written a book about a famous murder trial and Deakin was the lawyer. Of, of Deeming. Yeah. Yes. And so I was really surprised to learn that he was a spiritualist and he was a medium that spoke yep. to ghosts. So... <laughs> yes, he, he was not just a medium who, who, who spoke to ghosts. He was regarded as uh, Victoria's and, uh, and Australia's most influential medium. That's he was right. the president of the Victorian Association of Progressive Spiritualists. Um, and he uh, believed that he had been possessed by the spirit of... John Bunyan, the author of A Pilgrim's Progress, on 49 occasions, during which time, through his hand, John Bunyan penned a sequel to uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, rather unimaginatively titled A New Pilgrim's Progress, which, uh, which was published to no great acclaim. Um, he took uh, share advice uh, on, on what shares to buy from a dead Ballarat accountant. Um, his first political advisor 
was Victorian Premier Richard Heels, who was 17 years in the coffin when he started giving Deakin political advice. Uh, Deakin took political advice from uh, uh, the dead uh, Prince um, Albert, uh, Victoria's husband. Uh, he took advice from Shakespeare. Uh, he, he took advice from anybody who was dead. Um, I refer to him as, as, as Australia's leading necromancer, leading liberal necromancer. Um, what, and, and look, this is pretty crazy stuff, even, yeah. even by the reasonably crazy standards of the day. He was fascinated by alternative spirituality. He dabbled in occultism. He became a theosophist for a while, subscribed to the magazine Lucifer, which was the theosophical uh, uh, occultist sort of magazine of choice. Um, he was fascinated by alter alternative spirituality um, to the conventional Church of England uh, uh, spirituality that he'd been raised with. Um, fascinated by uh, Islam and Hinduism, wrote very thoughtful essays and, and books on them, uh, wrote about Swedenborgianism, um, uh, another sort of spiritualist off, offshoot sect. Um, so even, even after he became a successful Victorian politician, he still, you know, would go to a seance and speak to his dead father. Um, um, it's quite normal for that time, wasn't it? So seances and well, spirituality was quite... They, they were normal amongst... It, it, it was popular. Mm. So spiritualism had really been popularised amongst the intelligentsia when Abraham Lincoln's um, wife uh, invited spiritualists to the White House to allow her to talk to her dead sons. After Abraham died, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln... Um, you know, had a famous spirit photograph with with her dead husband where there's this sort of ghostly luminescent uh, Abraham Lincoln sort of floating behind her. Um, and people were looking, this is the time of Darwin challenging biblical literalism. It's the time where people are looking at rocks and saying these are millions of years old. They weren't just laid down after Noah's flood. That, you know, the universe is more than 4,000 years old, they were saying. These things really shook people's faith in conventional Christianity and they were looking for alternative belief systems. And with spiritualism, where you believe that the dead, you know, crossed the, the ethereal barrier between life and death and would give you advice uh, or talk to you or do entertaining things for you, seemed very real because these were physical things, you know, Spirits made tapping sounds, they made, or, or their mediums did, made, you know, strange, eerie lights. Um, so you could, you could, this was a religion that you could physically experience. And so it was actually remarkably popular in, in, in Australian and in particular Victorian Melbourne intellectual circles. So there were lots of doctors and lawyers and, and, and a few politicians who were, art and spiritualists. Um, other spiritualists in the book, uh, Louisa Lawson, Henry Lawson's mother, as she hated to be known, but was the first uh, editor of the first feminist uh, uh, magazine in Australia, The Dawn, um, hugely influential in the, in the women's rights movement. Uh, Edward William Cole, who owned Cole's Book Arcade, 
down in Melbourne, uh, another spiritualist. So, um, you know, there were quite a few respectable, successful uh, people who, who really believed um, that they could talk to the dead and the dead had something useful to say. Um, so you've touched on the fact that you cover Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson. Yeah. So can you describe how these two poets were different to one another? Yeah. yeah. To me, it seemed like, you know, like the, the pop culture rivalry that we have today, yeah. you know, like with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, and what their impacts were on shaping our Australian identity. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, <clears throat> Banjo Patterson, I think, was the first Australian poet who wrote with a really distinctive Australian voice. Um, he His early successful poems were about horse racing um, uh, and he'd write about horse races and that connected with a readership who perhaps may not have been terribly interested in poetry before. So he, he broadened poetry's appeal. A couple of the earlier sort of poets also wrote about horsey type things, but they did it in a bit more of a plummy sort of English way. He really sort of used Australian language and vernacular um, and was, I think, probably the most influential of what we know as the bush poets, poets who popularised the myth that the Bushman was the ideal Australian. Um, and so What's amazing is that at this era of, as Australia is searching for an identity to hang its hat on, as who are we going to be when we come together as a nation, they, they really fixated on this idea of the Bushman. Um, the perfect Australian was your sort of tall, strapping, six foot bloke from the country who, you know, spoke little, laughed when he did, um, was good with horses, uh, he was, he was not a station owner um, who was a capitalist. He was a working man. So he was your, your, your shearer, um, your fencer. Uh, he, they were sort of working class Bushmen. Uh, and Patterson, more than any, any, anybody else, popularised the idea of the Bushman as being the, the ideal Australian. Henry Lawson... It's funny that he's characterised as a bush poet because he hated the bush. Uh, he, in fact, writes, he has a battle of the, the bards competition with, with Patterson, where Patterson writes a poem in the bulletin about how much he loves the bush, and Henry Lawson responds to that poem with a poem about how much he hates it and how it's degrading and depressing and grinds people into the hard red dust. So Henry Lawson's, in inverted commas, bush poems are very different and Henry Lawson, I think, is Australia's greatest poet of, of that era. He was not so much a bush poet as a, as a revolutionary. His, early, his first poem was a call for an Australian republic, um, uh, Sons of the South, uh, where he's, causing, he's basically calling for the masses to, uh, to rise up against Britain um, on the path to nationhood. And that was not a popular view at the time. His other great po early poem is Freedom on the Wallaby, which is a poem about the striking shearers in the 1890 shearers strike, um, which is, again, a call for an industrial revolution of the working man. 
So Henry Lawson was a labour poet. He wrote a lot about class. He wrote a lot about people being ground into the dust by the capitalist overlords. And we think of him as a bush poet. Well, he wasn't really. He was sort of a, a miserable revolutionary poet who was also an alcoholic and wrote bloody, bloody miserable poetry, but <laughs> wrote it very well. So you've got the happy optimism of Patterson and, and, and the bush, and you've got the miserable um, lament, laments of Lawson. Um, Dave or Bob Dylan? <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I call sort of, um, yeah. yeah, you know, um, Lawson sort of a, a Bob Dylan, Nick, Nick Cave-like <laughs> figure. Uh, yeah. um, but both of them were incredibly influential in making Australians think about who they were and what they valued. But, um, there's all these little surprises throughout the book, things that I had never really thought about. So mm. one of the things um, was the YMCA. I'd, even though it's this big, iconic, gay, classic song, I didn't yeah. realise that it actually stood for Young Men's Christian Association. It, um, it certainly and does. It, yeah, and that it was focused on the muscular Christian movement. So that, yeah. was, that was interesting. But, um, yeah. Another really surprising being being uh, being, being for Jesus. Yeah. I think I referred <laughs> to it as, as, there was yeah. all these little snippets that I just went, what, where did that come from? Um, yeah. But one of the really interesting things that you touch on was the fact that the very first Australian sporting team to travel overseas yeah. was the Australian cricket team, mm. and they were all Aboriginal. Yes, and, and, and nearly, I think, I think all of them were Victorian as well. Yeah. Um, so that's an incredible sporting tour. Um, and the team was originally uh, coached by um, Thomas Wentworth uh, Wills, uh, the, the creator of Aussie Rules, who was the captain of both the Victorian and the Queensland cricket teams, um, who there's been some, some recent interest in the fact that he may have participated in Aboriginal massacres following uh, an Aboriginal attack on his family property, Cullinalaringo, up in Queensland, where his father and 16 other people on the property were killed. Uh, yet after that, he goes on to coach this Aboriginal cricket team that ends up touring England, winning as much as it loses. Um, and this was a real challenge for Australians. Should they support uh, this this team of, in inverted commas, Australian sportsmen, the first Australian touring, touring team, um, or should they, they not? And they didn't quite know how to handle it because the idea of the natives who were looked down on toweling up a team full of white men was profoundly challenging. Um, um, and it's, it's interesting that shortly after uh, that team toured, Victoria effectively introduced the first comprehensive Aboriginal protection laws, which which prevented um, Aboriginal people from freedom of movement um, and from basically leaving Victoria without permission. They weren't going to be letting any more Aboriginal people uh, out to 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 towel up uh, their colonial masters back in Britain. Um, so. Yeah, look, it's an incredibly important part of Australian history and it showed the the conflict in the Australian psyche. Gee, we loved seeing a bunch of Australians tail up the palms. Uh, 
but we didn't feel comfortable with a bunch of Aboriginal people beating um, a bunch of white people. Yeah, so speaking of um, racism, um, mm. in the book you discuss blackbirds. So this yeah. was it was recently addressed in the media. Yeah. Uh, I'd never heard of it. And then in the media it was raised because Scott Morrison said that Australia had never had slaves during yeah. last year's Black Lives Matter yeah. marches. Um, can you tell us what blackbirds were? And yeah. like, how do you feel about our prime ministers, not just Scott hmm. Morrison, but most of our prime ministers, um, just really glossing over this part of our history? So blackbirding was the practice of effectively um, trying to staff your sugar or cotton plantations, predominantly in Queensland, although there were earlier blackbirding ventures to get Pacific Islanders over here to do whaling work, Ben Boyd in, in, in Sydney. Um, so blackbirding was effectively sending a ship to Vanuatu or the Solomon Islands or other Pacific Islands and encouraging, um, in inverted commas, Pacific Islanders to come on board and come and work in Australia um, for not much money, if, if any money at all. Um, and when I say encouraging, sometimes there were false promises of the riches that would be earned um, using, in, in inverted commas, decoy Pacific Islanders who would come out on the boat and say, oh, it's great in Australia, you've got to come, you'll come home rich and own many pigs and be very successful, uh, to, doubt, to out and out kidnapping where you would go to a Pacific Island, club some locals on the head, throw them in the bottom of the boat and, and send them to work on Queensland plantations. Um, this was done by blackbirders. Uh, they were called blackbirds because the people they captured, the Pacific Islanders, were known as blackbirds uh, or black pearls because of their economic value. And they were essentially labour recruitment firms. They were middlemen uh, where if you wanted to get cheap labour on your sugar plantation, you, you sent these guys off to round up some, some Pacific Island labourers. Um, they generally stayed here for three years. Um, sometimes they just simply weren't allowed to go home. Um, they were meant to be paid. Sometimes they weren't. Um, they weren't allowed to leave the plantation. If they did, the police would bring them back. Um, they weren't technically slaves in the old sense of the word in that they were not property of, of, of a master. They were not um, personal property. But it would fall easily within the definitions of modern slavery that we use today. Um, wage exploitation, freedom of restriction of movement, uh, mistreatment, um, all of those things. Um, and uh, that remained incredibly popular until 1904 in Queensland from really the 1860s until 1904 when as part of the White Australia policy, the government said uh, no more Pacific Islanders, they come here, they take our jobs, they drive down wages, uh, uh, and we're going to send them all home, including Pacific Islanders who'd lived here for generations, were going to be forcibly deported. So um, not only were they victims of modern slavery, uh, they were then, uh, some of them, uprooted and sent to islands that they'd never been to under um, you know, one of the more unpleasant um, sidelines in our white Australia policy. Uh, so 
there's no doubt that they were mistreated. Um, there's no doubt that it falls within the definition of modern slavery. You know, but Morrison would be technically correct when he says they were not slaves. That is, they were not the property of anyone. It's all semantics, right? Yeah, and, and that argument about semantics misses the main point. Um, look, it's also interesting today that we have the Pacific Islander Labourers Program introduced by the Gillard government in, I think, 2012 or 13, where we essentially bring in Pacific Island labourers for fruit picking and other jobs where they're not paid the award wage uh, and they take that money back to their mm. Pacific Islanders they, and, and are often um, brought out by labour hire contractors, put in substandard accommodation, a sort of vast sort of barracks and, and generally don't have the industrial protections that we give to our own citizens. Um, look, I, I sort of say, think about this as perhaps a modern form of blackbirding. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, okay, look, we're coming up to our 30 minutes. So I just wanted oh. to touch on, I know, it went so quick. There you go. I know, but look, there was this quote that I wanted to read out, if you can indulge mm. me, because I think it sort of speaks to um, what you were saying about women's rights. So mm. this is from Queen Victoria at the time. It's in the third person. Yeah. And she says, the Queen is most anxious to enlist everyone who can speak or write to join in checking this mad, wicked folly of women's rights with all its attendant horrors on which her poor, feeble sex is bent, forgetting every womanly sense of feeling and propriety. She then goes on to say, it's a subject that makes the Queen so furious that she cannot contain herself. God created men and women different, then let them remain each in their own position. She even mentions whipping in there, whipping ladies. Whipping Lady Amberley. Yes, that's right. Lady Amberley was the mother of Bertrand Russell, um, the English mathematician, playwright, philosopher, uh, and she was a leading British suffragist who who was wanted women to have equal employment rights, wanted women to be able to work as doctors, wanted women to be able to have the vote. And being an aristocratic lady, you know, got, got a fair bit of traction um, on, on, on those issues, which horrified Queen Victoria. And it is, it is fascinating. You know, Queen Victoria was the most powerful person in the world, arguably, at the time. She was a woman. Um, uh, and yet she didn't see women as worthy of having power or influence. Um, uh, you know, she was a queen, so she was all right, but um, she conformed to the sort of traditional Victorian ideal of the woman living and occupying the domestic sphere, the sphere of the house uh, where all a woman was expected to do was to raise a new generation of healthy British children uh, and to cook and clean and, um, and, and keep her husband happy. And that was the ideal uh, Victorian woman, the woman in, kept in the public sphere. And a lot of the book is about mm. um, how women were attempting to break through those confining walls of the, of the, um, the home sphere and, and move into 
bits of the public sphere that had been traditionally seen as, as the preserve of men. There's so many things that I could talk to you about for hours. I've only just really touched the, the surface. Um, but how did you come up with what to put in the book and what to leave out? And do you have a yeah. lot more to, to still go? Is there a lot yeah, of look, this is, this is always the problem in, in, in writing history. And indeed, particularly when you're trying to write history in, in an entertaining way, it's, it's getting a balance between how much of what I write am I writing for the purpose of entertainment and how much am I writing for the purpose of um, uh, providing information. So information always comes first. The idea is that I have to tell a story that is real, a, a narrative that is real and then make the humour or, or the style of writing work towards that. Because a lot of what the subject matter I deal with is not inherently funny. It's, it's yeah. you know, grotesque xenophobia and racism, sexism, all sorts of other stuff. Um, and obviously you've got to employ a fair, fair slab of irony to get that done. Um, I knew when I wrote this book that I wanted it to be uh, True Gert was a book about the expanding Australian frontier, uh, bushrangers, explorers going out and saying, this is now ours. Um, so it was a frontier story. This is a story of how the, uh, the colonies and the people came together and, and forged a common sense of identity or tried to do that. So I knew that I wanted um, uh, to focus on federation, um, the, the sort of who was in the tent and who was outside of the tent. And when I started writing it, I thought that I would write up to the beginning of World War One, And I had a great ending, um, which was, you know, lots of people don't know, but the first shots that the Allies ever fired in World War One were shot in Melbourne Harbour, uh, where uh, before there was any, uh, before the Brits had a go or the French had a go back in Europe, um, uh, um, a, a Melbourne battery fired upon a, a German steamer that was trying to escape out of port um, just after war had been declared. So those first shots were fired in Australia. And I thought that would be a good place to end. And then if perhaps a Gert forward would look at, you know, Gert World War. Mm. Um, I didn't get that far simply because I had too much material. And once I decided to settle on Alfred Deakin as my central character, because he pops up in all sorts of of the topic areas, as well as being, I think, probably the most influential figure in the push for federation. Um, I end with Alfred Deakin becoming prime minister in 1903. Um, so I'm sort of closing that chapter of that central character's life. Um, but it covers all of the themes that I wanted to do covering uh, coming the coming together of an Australian identity. So it was a pretty good place to end at the time, I think. Okay, so we're looking forward to your fourth book, I think. Uh, uh, yes, yes, I think uh, I've, the, thought of, the thought of writing another one at the moment fills me with horror. Uh, so I'm just going to uh, enjoy this one for a while. And I like this one. It's, it's the favourite out of, uh, out of uh, the history books I've, I've written. It's a personal favourite. And um, and I'm actually going to try my hand uh, next year at, at writing some crime fiction. So oh, um, cool. as, as, as a break. Oh, great. <laughs> so, look, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really fascinating. As I said, I could talk to you for hours. 
Um, for all our um, people listening at home, thank you. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as I have. You can pick up your copy of Girt Nation from a bookstore near you, or you can order online from Booktopia. Thank you again for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.